It's the Breakcast, Breakcast, the PopBreak.com Breakcast, Breakcast, listen to the show Because you're in for the PopBreak.com Breakcast, Breakcast, oh episode of Marshall's Movies, we are going to talk about Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Uh, Kubrick was a director that Marshall loved very much, and this is one of his most iconic masterpieces. And I brought on our great friend Jake Hoffman, because Jake and Marshall are both very big fans of fearless art. They're both fans of artistic ambition, and they're also fans of art that isn't, a, that isn't constrained by convention. Now, this may be an iconically bad movie, but I believe that Jake's favorite movie would be uh, it's, um, Is The Room. Yeah. And I, the reason I'm making that comparison is because this movie was sort of derided by, at least in some by some critics, you know, the Razzies, which are absolute worthless garbage and just status quo reinforcing crap. Um, like, they nominated Jack Nicholson for Worst Performance. And it's, yeah, 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 they... As I just said before Sam hit record, I think this Jack Nicholson's performance might be my favorite performance in any movie ever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's a... And it's especially interesting how that specific characterization is really essential to what... to why uh, Stephen King hates this movie so much. Um, because I had sort of grown up with The Shining, the movie, but I hadn't really read the, I think I started to read it around when I was 14 or 15, but I just kind of stopped. And I didn't read it again until recently, like a few years, like two years ago. And I was expecting all these massive changes when there really aren't too many, I wouldn't say too many textual changes, at least like in things like dialogue and structure and things like that. The key difference is Jack Torrance. Um, certain scenes, like when he's talking to, uh, like when he's anytime he's talking to Grady, he in the movie he's kind of stern, like he's just kind of going with it, like he's pretty sober. Um, whereas in the book, in those scenes, it's like he's in this psychotic, drunken, just rage, and then he's, what, what's going on? Like, oh, yeah, no, I'll, I'll kill him because you don't want me to whatever. It's like, unlike the sort of equally insane and ravenous, but very content with it, uh, Jack Torrance of the film, where it's like, he's told, like, okay, you got, no, you want me to kill him for alcohol? Well, I'll kill him for alcohol. <laughs> you know? Just and, the look on his face. Yeah, exactly. And so what, why don't you talk a bit more about... Uh, why maybe why is your favorite performance in the characterization mm. as well i think especially those scenes you're just talking about with grady he gives the most far off look and he just looks absolutely possessed and at the same time it's like he's taking instructions and he's nodding his head and like you said just kind of rolling with it in this really really strange way and I think the thing about Jack in that movie is just his explosive mood swings. Like when he's typing and his, and his wife comes in and talking and says, hey, can I bring you some sandwiches? And he says, how would I make you a deal? <laughs> <laughs> if you hear this. <laughs> da, da, da. So, but like, I think it's the up and down of the character. And I think with the slow pace of the movie at some times, and the silence, something just comes out of nowhere and it can be as bizarre as it is scary. Mm -hmm. And they both leave you feeling unsettled mm -hmm. and it kind of unravels throughout the entire movie and just kind of just keeps getting better and better. I, I do have to wonder, because uh, <laughs> obviously there's been much controversy about how Kubrick treated his actors like with the hundred takes for certain scenes i mean without like defending it you just have to wonder if like that's just the jack that we're seeing it's like that's just that's maybe it's not like so much method acting 
so much as it is like, okay, this is what this is what Stanley wants from me. This mm-hmm. is what I'm gonna give him. And then, mm-hmm. yeah, and all those hand ty- all those notes, they're actually hand typed. Yeah, Ooh. which is very spooky to think about when you see it. Yes, now you can just. Uh, I played a joke on a friend a few years ago. Because now you can just like go to this website that'll actually just do that for you, like you know, all word, like specifically dedicated to those words, all words. No oh. Um, and something I really love about the movie is that it's it's obviously a ghost story, but there's not too much. Well, maybe I, I don't know. Maybe I could be wrong. Maybe I'm missing something. But there's not too much in terms of the typical ghostly stuff. There's no. Uh, you know, translucent look to the ghosts, really. There's no, uh, there aren't too many special effects regarding that. It's mostly just, this room was empty. Now, this room was empty earlier. Now we're back here and there's a lot of people. Or there's a person there when Jack Sawyer comes in, but then when Wendy shows up, the person goes away. Um, It's just very much kind of Jack Torrance kind of taking us through this and just, and the fact that he's like so okay with this. I agree, kind of leaving it, keeping it low-key for the whole time. But at the end, when Shelley Duvall's walking all over, and she walks into the ballroom, <laughs> and she sees all the skeletons. Yeah. That's... Just the, the look on her face is so unsettling. Mm-hmm. And even watching it last night, I knew it was coming up, and I still watched it. And like hearing her screaming was just... You know. It's, it really... It really had a massive impact, and it could be because there's not, you know, your typical translucent ghosts go running around that when you see a, a hall full of skeletons, yeah. it's properly scary. Yeah, I think what's so great about that kind of reveal where Wendy actually finally sees supernatural elements for the first time towards the end of the movie, it's like, it's stuff that we've already seen, but she's seeing it for the first time, and that's partly what makes it so scary because we've already seen this, but now that she's seeing this, she wasn't aware of the other stuff that was freaking us out for the rest of the movie. It's like, you, like she had no idea how bad it was and, and she's just finding out when she's looking for her son and her husband's trying to kill her. Uh, you know, it might be... The movie from her perspective might even be scarier. What, yeah. You're watching two people slowly falling apart and then actually seeing, oh no, mm. uh, they were right to some degree. Mm. <sighs> yeah. yeah, and mm. especially... Uh, Especially because she's just so worried as it is about the real elements, about like, you know, her husband who could physically go crazy and physically kill her and being stuck there and just the isolation. She's already got enough on her plate with the non-supernatural elements. (laughs) Seriously. And she presents herself as so kind and like she's doing her best genuinely. I don't know how anybody could listen to their son tell them Danny's not here right now <laughs> and to respond with any type of cool head. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I mean, she's really holding it down for the family. <laughs> it's such a funny moment before she goes to confront Jack before she reads the quote-unquote play. <laughs> and then she's like, oh, that's, gonna... oh, that, oh, that's a play? <laughs> well, that's why I said quote-unquote. It's a... Or, I think I it's supposed. It. To, I think it's supposed to be a play in the book, but I think they just refer to it as a writing project in the movie, which I mean, writing project is more accurate. Um, well, he is typing ferociously yeah. for a lot. And but what's so funny? What I just think is so funny is when she's like, "There's like Danny's just watching TV, and she's like, I'm gonna go check on your dad now, and then okay, and then he just kind of I forget. I think he says like, Danny's not here,' right? <laughs> and then she just kind of goes." that's exactly what I'm talking about where it's like okay alright my son's doing this I gotta go check on my husband okay let's go do this yeah. <laughs> oh god and it's just and there's something just so simple and cold and calculating about Kubrick's style that's just like I think about for instance um at the beginning of the movie, and there, there's a great detail that uh, my friend Patrick, who's, all, who's also a guest on this show, um, pointed great guy. out. Yeah, great guy. Um, he, when he, he and I saw the movie in theaters like five or six years ago, it was like some fathom event thing. And when she and when 
uh, Wendy's talking to the nurse um, or the doctor. Um, she says something about how uh, you know Jack promised that he would never drink, and mm-hmm. then he hasn't had a drink in five months. And then later, when Jack is like venting to Lloyd, he's just and he's venting about the event that you know made him say, you know, I'm never gonna have a drink again. Oh well, yeah, and drink five months. But then he's like, when he reflects on the event, he's like, it was three goddamn years ago. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, it's man. like she's being she's being so compassionate to you. Oh, she's man. leaving out the she's leaving out the two and a half years of relapse. Oh man. <laughs> and I you know I didn't I didn't notice how important that first scene with the doctor was until I don't know fifth or sixth time I watched it yeah where the things they say in the beginning of the movie that just really sets the tone for the entire thing and the way that the camera like gets like after she's and you know he acts you know it's the sort of thing you do so many times but he accidentally used too much strength this time and you know injured his arm and then the way that it just cuts and you know how you know how things go yeah she she says like well you know know how things are when you're getting angry Mm. ah (laughs) yeah and like and the way that it cuts from that close up of Wendy to not a close up, but I think like a medium shot that was a little, that was closer to the doctor, like right after she says that. And then she's just like, like you just read so much into the stillness of the shot and the stillness of her face as like, that's like the cut to her because that's like the most horrifying thing she's ever heard. <laughs> it, you know, like. Absolutely, and with that cut, you know, I'm, I'm going to take a, a little switch here, if we will, and, okay. and hop over to the. Let's go over to the Overlook Hotel. Yeah, and of uh, you're, you're the camera guy, so why don't you tell me about what is that? A massive rolling dolly shot where it just it's a, just keeps going right forever. Um, hmm. are, are you talking about uh, when they arrive at the Overlook? Um, and they're like looking through it and it's yeah I think that's a I think that's a dolly shot I know that one thing that was very that was made very popular well not maybe even like a mental um, for the movie would be this was the Steadicam mm. um, and that's and that's something that they used for the uh, for like Danny like tri- you know on his tricycle going gotcha and gotcha like that um, and it's and it's just very <laughs> It's very dynamic in a lot of ways, like the ways that the, like when the camera goes by the environments. It cuts, turns really nicely. Yes. Yeah. And, and when I think about that, um, say when like Jack arrives with the family, like the family arrives and, um, and then Grady kind of like, no, no, not Grady, uh, Ullman, um, kind of takes them throughout it. And then there's so many like layers of life, like you have people that are leaving and it looks just so wonderful and mm-hmm. like like I said, dynamic and and they got 50, 50 lambs, a hundred chickens. Mm-hmm. They got the yeah, mm-hmm. it's the place to be. Yeah, I watched. I must have watched this over ten years ago, but there was a great video um, that sort of broke down the kind of spatial impossibilities of the Overlook Hotel, um, and. I think what was so interesting about that video, and I think it's so much more interesting than most of the analytical videos that people make about The Shining, where it's like, oh, this is this is the Illuminati, this is he's confessing to the moon landing, and mm-hmm. things like well, that. Well, he's got that sweatshirt on, <laughs> and now we can leave that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what I think is uh, so effective about that video is that it really does establish just kind of how impossible but almost like essential the overlook is like one detail that always stood out that stood out to me in that video and sticks out to me whenever I watch the movie is like when like there's a door that like is right in front of like a stairwell like a hotel room door in front of like a stairwell Mm -hmm. and it's like and it's almost like like it makes sense because you just expect the doors to be there for the sake of themselves um but then you realize, oh wait, no, that's not right. Oh wait, no, that's not right. It's a bunch of little things that just add up to this kind of general unease. Absolutely, it's like you don't even notice it the first you know time you watch it, or maybe you do, but I didn't. I've watched the movie a whole bunch of times, mm-hmm. and those details come in, and I feel like when they're in the <laughs> snow labyrinth at the end of the movie, like you were saying, mm-hmm. with the like the impossibility of it, it's just like. The way Jack is walking, 
Mm. Looks like you're stuck in time. Yep. Just falling forward a little bit, getting exhausted, and it's it has a very it's not even a feeling of dread. It's a feeling of exhaustion. Because it yeah. seems like, oh, is this what it feels like to be stuck in an endless labyrinth? Mm. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> and there is a kind of and I do like how with Dan they also establish like a very basic, I guess, uh, tangibility to the scene because because they were because they do establish that no, yeah, you can get out, but mm-hmm. he, but Jack's not going to. <laughs> well, I mean, when he's talking about oh, people are coming, he's like, no one's coming. Have you checked the phones? <laughs> and it's like, oh man, he's been doing some bad stuff, and she's got no idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Ah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, God, the death of Dick Halloran is just, like, it's just miserable. I mean, that that's such a weird thing to say. I, I personally believe it's the... If you want to film, you know, a, a death scene with, a, with an axe, mm-hmm. that's what it looks like. Yes. That's exactly it right there. Mm-hmm. And uh, every time I see it, it's just like you said. It's just oh no, just falling down real slow. And what I love about it too is that it does have like Dick showing up does have its place in the plot, um, like because he brought the snow cat, um, they were able to get out. But there's no. But there's. I didn't I, know that until you just said it. Okay. <laughs> Um, yeah, exactly. It's like, it's essential, but it's also like you barely, because the movie is just so persistently miserable. There's no like, uh, you know, oh, thank you, Dick, for sacrificing yourself for my, you know, it's, it's none of that. It's like the man's dead and it's like, okay, this is our way out of this hell. You get at, you like, you get out of hell because you want to get out of hell. Like, mm-hmm. I, you, you know, Alfonso Cuaron had a great quote about like making a movie in hell. Some people will ask him, like, oh, are you so happy when it's finished? And then it's like, how does it, the comparison he made was something like, how does a fox feel when it's like escaped the hunt? It's like mm. a fox isn't happy. It's just the fox is just, you know, the fox is just relieved that it's alive, but that's not like true happiness. That's just, oh, I just got out of that with my life. Um, and that very much ties into, I guess, the, the key distinction between the book and the movie, which is that the book, you know, it, it's a redemption story, mm-hmm. whereas the movie is very much not a redemption story. It's the world like, would be bleak. Yes, exactly. I mean, it's, everything's white outside, it's very quiet, and yeah, it's definitely not a redemption story in any way. And I guess people always say the Oval Hotel is kind of like a character in that movie almost, and because the the tone that's set, you know, I'm sure it's Stanley, Stanley Kubrick's genius and all kinds of things like that, but just the way the sound and the way it looks just makes it so endlessly bleak. And also at the same time, like, time's not even passing. Yeah. A very yeah. bad, very, very bad nightmare. <laughs> yeah, it's like we understand that, uh, like, once the snow starts, it's like... It- you, you just can't really tell how much time has passed. I, I can't even pro- I probably can't even like definitively tell you or give you like a general idea of at what point they get out. I'm sure like I'm sure that if we watch the movie and like we look at the time, I'm sure we can figure it out. But like just thinking back on it like instinctively and just like letting it settle, it's like I have no idea how long they were in there. Well, Sam, you know, thinking uh, when you're working that hard, when you're writing so long, there's endless hours each day. It's easy to lose track of time. I think, God, I think... That was a joke for everybody. I, I, I think what's so great about that reveal, too, is that it really adds, like, this horrifying element to when, uh, to when Jack is, like... Like, that scene, I think you brought it up earlier, when he's, you know, you're distracting him. And then it's like, yeah, you're distracted. Like, he's, like, she's distracting you from typing the same one and he's and he's that passionate it's so twisted it's when you realize what he's doing it is so twisted and it's like oh no this guy is doing something purely menacing and i have no idea what it's about i think i think i was listening to the commentary it might have been a commentary might have heard this somewhere else but it was in some analysis of the movie um i think the commentary was 
I think there are a few commentaries on the 4K. One is from the Meditated Meta Can. He's actually around this area. Um, That's notable. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but so on the commentary, I think someone said, like, when Wendy realizes what he's typing, she realizes it's both, you know, so much less and so much more than she realized. It's like, uh, they just keep, she just keeps pulling the pages. She mm. just keeps pulling them. <laughs> and it's unbelievable. And that might be the thing where, is that when the movie turns? Is that when it takes the turn? Yes. What is that? Two thirds of the way through? I would say there's, I think there's probably about 40 minutes left at that point. And it's an hour, and so we're like an hour and 40 minutes into the movie at that point, I would say, so. That's a lot of building up until there, and that really, every time I watch it, I tune out, almost on purpose, but it's kind of like, it just sets an awesome, uh, sets an awesome tone, and next thing I know, it's just horror everywhere. There's also a moment that I really love, that I really love in the movie, that I think is just so unsettling, is when, after... Jack uh, commits necrophiliac adultery. <laughs> um, he shouldn't have gone to that room. He should not have gone to that room. Um, he, uh, what does he do? So he goes to tell Wendy, like, oh, there was nobody in there. I don't know. And then when she, and then when he says something like, uh, um, like, I think he must have done it to himself. And then she wants to get out of there. Like, you know, I think we should leave the hotel and take him to a doctor. And then, and then he's like, I, you think we should leave? And then the film basically uses just like editing and like sound to just sort of, uh, sort of synchronize like his rage with like, what, with like the supernatural elements of the Overlook. Like you have, I forget, I, I think after Jack says that, you know, leave the hotel and before he starts like yelling at her, there's at least a shot of like the, of the hotel, you know, the elevator with the blood coming out. And there might have been another shot before, I forget what, but the way that the sound builds up and then you have those two horrifying shots in between him, like just saying, you think we should leave the hotel and then him, and the way that his dialogue, like, yo, that is so typical of you. And oh, then the way so that's over good. the image and bleeds right so into the shot. Yeah, exactly. And it's, and that's just, that's just something that's really stuck with me. I'm not going to um, hurt you. Yeah, I'm just going to bash you. <laughs> and it's and again what kind of distinguishes that from the book and what's interesting in the book is that this is almost worse i i he doesn't use an axe in the book he uses a croquet mallet Ooh. and he does get some hits in and i think it's like and i think there's a very interesting distinction there because it because I think, like, I think, I the kind of connection I'm trying to make here is, like, with an axe, like, that basically just has one purpose. Like, if, like, Dick Halloran is hit with an axe mm. once and he's dead. Whereas the croquet mouth... Does he do that first? Sorry? Does he take out Dick Halloran first before the Here's Johnny scene? No, he takes him out after. Oh, okay, gotcha. Yeah. Um, but, uh... But like with an axe, it's like if you, you know, a croquet mallet is like it takes a few heads. I'm not trying to, like, it's actually very horrifying in the book. Well, it has a different function. You play croquet. Yeah, exactly. But And it sort of allows, and it kind of feeds into Jack's like quasi-possessed, very drunk, confusion, delirium, rage, mm -hmm. where he's like, he's just kind of able to swing around. And, you know, I think he hits everyone except Danny. Mm. Dick Halloran does survive the book, but he does, I think he does get a beating. Um, and like Wendy, like I think her ankle breaks because of the croquet mallet. Does Jackie didn't have his baseball bat in the book? I think so. I okay. forget. But um, That's one of the best parts. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but so what I think is interesting is that, it, is that the differences in weapons, it's like Jack's rage and psychotic nature are very focused and it's like he's you know it's not like swinging around like a croquet mallet it's like he has an axe and he's using it um and another i think a great detail is apparently uh they made like for when jack was like supposed to cut through the doors um they made these uh kind of weaker um like just weaker doors so that way 
you know, so it wouldn't be too hard for him to cut through. But they didn't know that he was like an experienced fireman, so he just like tore through those doors like they were papers. Like, okay, so let's get a real. When that's the thing, when Jack loses it, when he starts going, mm-hmm. he is fired up, and I didn't know he. I had had no idea he had any. You know, any fire police, firefighter experience, but he sure looks ferocious, and like those are some powerful kicks and swings. You know what's so horrifying too, like. I'm pretty, because I'm almost certain, in fact, I don't even think the technology that they would have used to sort of match the shots like that exists, existed then. Um, but the, but when he's sort of outside the room and then he's in the room, but outside the bathroom mm-hmm. and he's, and they have like sort of side shots of the, you know, with the, with it perfectly following the ax, it's like. They're obviously they're obviously in different rooms, but the shots are so perfectly matched that you would almost think like that they just took the same that they shot him in front of a green screen and just changed the background and they just kind of like use the same shot. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. And it's but it's but that's just but it's not that. It's like they're in different rooms and they just went through so many takes, so many that they just got it down that perfectly, and that's just what makes it that almost makes it more unsettling. I mean, it does. Absolutely. Work. Because it it looks totally purposeful. Yeah. Even, mm-hmm. even to the level of being meticulous. Mm-hmm. And getting back to that impossible depth, impossible geometry of it. So the whole movie's kind of laid out in a very straightforward, almost like geometric way. Mm-hmm. And there, like, you, there are certain times where it just like fixes into that. And like the scene you're talking about right there where it's like, what? What am I watching? Like, mm-hmm. what is this angle right here? And I got to ask you a question. So you're saying that they potentially started the steady cam on that movie? Uh, yeah, I'm gonna check into that a little. Because I was gonna ask, is there like, I'm not somebody who knows a lot, especially when I was getting into the movie about cinematography to any extent. But that's always been a prime draw of The Shining, and I'm wondering, are there a bunch of groundbreaking Techniques in that, like pioneering uh, camera work. I, I, I feel treacherous not knowing the answer. Not really knowing the answer to that, but uh, it's only as broad as questions come. But I think that, but I, I think that was definitely one of the biggest ones. And again, even if, uh, even if The Shining wasn't like the movie that the Steadicam was invented for, it's like it's a, it was it sort of at least um, escalated. Like it's sort of. Um, I think you get what I mean. Oh, like, yeah, for yeah, sure. It had, like, an undeniable impact on the use of Steadicam, and... It brought um, it to the commercial. It made it a viable technique then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and just going back to that to that axe shot, too, it's, Please like, do. his very... I mean, that sort of... That's very in keeping with Kubrick's sort of uh, simple kind of objectivity. It's, like, he doesn't do I mean he does insane things with the camera but they're kind of deceptively simple it's like you're just watching this and it's like there's just very simple camera movements that accompany that perfectly accompany um these horrifying images um well they're all just pictures in your head right yeah exactly (laughs) Exactly. and uh, another another moment that gets sort of gets me every time it's like I'm just kind of waiting for it is when uh Wendy's, you know, she's Jack's getting through, and we see Wendy, and then there's a the part where the axe like really gets through, and then it gets stuck a bit, and then her response, like, ah, oh, that's just getting oh. back to what you said about the filming that went into it, and and you know how how he was treating the actors and actresses. I wasn't there. It sounds pretty rough, but the world has a multiple performances that appear absolutely possessed. Yes. And Shelley Duvall right there is... It's surreal looking at her. It's horrifying. Her... Because like you said, they're so... It feels normal. Looking at her, Mm -hmm. she feels normal. But it's just... It's true horror! Mm -hmm. It's almost like they're kind of polar opposites in the kind of way that you would expect like a... What's the, what's the, do you know what the dynamic is called? It's like the straight man and the, like uh, the, you know. Honey and vinegar? <laughs> Hold on. Good cop, bad cop. Or, yeah, something like that where, where basically you have. The wingman? Uh, 
Well, no, we're think of like a Abbott and Costello it's, oh, or yeah. something like that, where um, I've got your duo here, yeah, your Penn and a double, yeah, a double act. Um, you got your your lead, and then your support. yeah, or like a, or yeah, like yeah. you know, Pinky in the Brain, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's sort of like that, but it's almost the opposite. But I mean, <laughs> but it's I mean, it's not that in the sense of like intelligence or like, but it's but it has that kind of contrasting dynamic in the sense that. Wendy is like being rightfully horrified by everything, and Jack is just cool all of so, it. So you're saying the contrast is their connection with reality? Yes, <laughs> exactly. Something Jake wanted to talk about was the relationship between uh, Danny and Dick, um, and it's very interesting how um when they when kind of dick first shows up there aren't really any close-ups of him until like until he has a shining connection with danny otherwise he's just kind of like sort of in these wide shots where he just kind of comes in with as part of like the overlook you know hotel crew and just sort of okay yeah we're gonna introduce you to this person i'll tell you about this um and those shots are all like i said they're all very similar they're all very wide and it's just about the family being introduced to other members of the hotel but then What's with the shot that separates uh, Halloran is when Danny's sort of like the shining sound comes in and then the camera zooms in. And that is a very potentially uh, menacing moment. Just potentially. Just, and it's, it's not so much menacing for, uh, it's not so much menacing in the sense that like Dick might be evil, but it's menacing as sort of like the, inherent nature of the shining it just turns the it just turns the heat up on everything yes exactly just get serious <laughs> and it's almost like that's his way of um kind of letting danny know that he's not alone even that even though it's like still like he like, it's almost like dick's aware of like how unsettling it is but it's like hey hey you know that's shining stuff okay let's get you out of there and we'll talk about it a bit um and an interesting moment in the book is I think they're sitting out. They're sitting outside um, when the two of them are talking, and Wendy's kind of watching. And a part of her is just kind of kind of has that, you know, in, instinctive maternal concern where she's like, where she sees a stranger with her son, and she's like, oh, I, oh, they're you know not too far from his car. You know, you could kidnap him right now or something. Now that like. you mention it, very much so. Mm-hmm. That's that's definitely yeah. a concern. Yeah, and uh, and. And you can really tell that Dick is actually looking out for Danny. Um, and I'm actually kind of reminded of, uh, you know, however Stanley Kubrick treated Jack Nicholson and most of all Shelley Duvall. Most of all, yeah. let that be known. <laughs> um, he was Santa loved Shelley Duvall. He was very protective of Danny. Like he didn't want Danny to be scared. The, the, actor's name is actually Danny. Oh, <laughs> and, and he, Jack's Jack. Yeah, oh, Jack's no. Jack. Um, and, like, he basically was able to convince Danny that he was watching a kid's, that he was making a kid's movie as they were making it. And that's almost, but that's almost how uh, Danny... What's his name? What's the... Yeah, Tony. Tony! <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. And what he, and that, and that dynamic of kind of, like, trying to make the shining, like, kid friendly is basically what dick's kind of doing where he's like hey you know you know he's just kind of making these little comparisons like oh yeah like it's kind of like you know burnt toast but then like when it comes to introducing something stay out of there and you know i think that's reflective of when denny's riding his big wheel down the endless hallways and when he gets one of his visions and he's just kind of rubbing his eyes, like, is this real? Like, oh no, hold up. And he's just trying to cool it down. Mm-hmm. I think and maybe he could have, that could have been somebody who thought he was in a, uh, a child's mm-hmm. television show, possibly. Yeah. And I also think about, uh, you mentioned his little finger thing with this for Tony. Apparently that was something that the actor sort of improv when he went into audition and supposedly... Well, it's that, a voice in the back of his throat. Yeah, so he's just like, oh, okay, all right, this is our Danny. Um, no, oh, that's cool, yeah, that's cool. Yeah. So Stanley Kubrick is probably like, okay, this guy's... Yeah. I, this guy's making the character he, zone. He's on my wavelength. <laughs> <laughs> As Stanley Kubrick is typing, all work and no play. Yeah. And... Which there's a lot... If you've ever watched the documentary, I think we're talking about the same one. 
They're I passing that. They're passing the typewriter back and forth, and people are just typing the whole time on it. Oh really? Yeah. yeah there's, oh, wow. It's all kinds of people who are typing that. Mm-hmm. It's like all right, just you know, as long like just, <laughs> just, just like this is. I made a comparison recently with like James Wan was sort of talking about. Uh, when he was making a franchise movie, it's like this is a sandbox, um, mm-hmm. and you have to stay within that sandbox. But you can make your own sandcastle. For everyone, the sandbox is all work, no play, makes Jack no play. As long as you stay within that sandbox, you can make your own sandcastle. Oh, yeah. I love it. Yeah, that's <laughs> funny. And what I love about the movie too is that I think I was saying this earlier. How it's you know often associated with very kind of classically scary classically spooky horror mm-hmm. movies and it is that mm-hmm. but um and i i don't want to make this distinction between like horror and like elevated horror because i think elevated horror is nonsense, well, <laughs> yeah, nonsense. Well, not that the word itself yeah it's so. like i think you know i think slocky slasher movies or like something like malignant is just as good as hereditary even though both people, great movies yeah exactly Love both wonderful books. movies but I remember when Hereditary came out, someone did make the distinction of the type of horror where it's like, it's not just like, it's not like you go, you don't watch this movie to have fun and be scared. If you, you told me, if you or anybody else ramped me and started talking about elevated horror and mm-hmm. the first thing that they said was Hereditary, I would lean into the conversation. Mm-hmm. I think that is, I think that's a, a distinction that is notable where it's like, well, I. <laughs> It struck it struck me differently. I know this is an hereditary podcast, Mm -hmm. but um, there is that distinction for sure. And you know, call whatever avant garde. But but I don't like that distinction. Is what I'm trying to say. Like when I I didn't mean avant garde when I just said it. (laughs) But um, but I guess often elevated horror is like I think about when people Candyman. Well, when when people talk about like Christopher Nolan is like, oh, he makes blockbusters that make you think. It's like, no, he's just trying to make a blockbuster mm-hmm. and he's trying to make a great blockbuster. Same with like I don't like calling elevated horror as if it's as if hereditary is bet is by its nature better than a nightmare on Elm Street. Well in different genres. Yeah. Know, just but, different. But basically um Nightmare on Elm Street. Woo. Yeah. But uh with so <laughs> I think The Shining very kind of comfortably exists in like both realms in a way. It's like it's definitely kind of a classically spooky horror movie that like uh, like the original um, House on Haunted Hill. Um, but and you know when I watched it for the first time as a kid, actually I think the first memory I have with this movie, I was at uh, every year my like elementary school bestie Madison Trout, um, her family would have like this. Uh, have like this heart, like this Halloween kind of not like a haunted hayride, but they would like live in the woods and so that way there was a hay- yeah, exactly. And um, at one of these parties, I was kind of in the kitchen by myself, and The Shining was on, and it was the uh, and it was the um, scene. It was the <laughs> the the necrophiliac adultery. <laughs> That's okay. I was watching them last night, and when that scene comes on. First of all, there's a whole bunch of like that's cutting all over the place. It's it's not one thing. It's kind of a array of shots. Oh, it just makes my skin turn. Like it just. I think that I think the sound would be a big factor right there because it just makes your heart drop. It's just mm-hmm. it takes over and it's like your brain goes into like your amygdala is talking like see you later. Um. I think what I was, uh, I forget what I was trying to say was, well, yeah, but the movie's sort of completely fitting in both camps, and it's just a movie, like, as, like, as I've grown up with it, because I watched it for the first time, I was, like, 13 years old, um, and it, uh, and, you know, it felt like a rite of passage watching it, just, like, watching The Exorcist a few years later, but as I grew up, I realized that it's truly like a deeply a movie that very deeply gets under your skin very much so very much that's why you leave it on winter that's why you just you put it on in the background let it go for a few days mm-hmm. and then a bunch of days later you wonder why you're feeling so strange it's mm-hmm. because you've had the shining on the background for the past few days yeah, i was watching it uh before you came to the podcast nice and, and uh and it was like storming and it started to storm when they were at the overlook and like i heard like the thunder coming i was like oh is everything I want right now because 
it's I mean yeah it's kind of a miserable movie but it is a it's a nice and isolating movie it's, it makes you almost comfortable with isolation in a way it's because there's so much space into it and mm-hmm. like and I wonder just to get back to elevated heart I gotta ask you would that even be a question if this movie was an hour and a half long or would it be right next to other slashers I mean I, I guess I guess it sort of depends on what you by that are you saying like if the studio like cut it down to nine I'm, movie down. I'm saying if movie if anybody sat down to watch the shiny was an, an hour and a half cut of that movie whatever it ended up being do you think it would be the same like it would be considered a masterpiece no do you think it would be considered elevated heart or i guess what i'm asking is would the idea of the elevated heart in the shining come from the slow burn aspect yes okay Yes, as much as I do have disdain for that term, I get what you're saying. I used yeah. it so everyone knew, yeah, exactly. including you. Just like exactly compa- what I said. like that's why people call it. Yes. Up. Okay. Yes, I get what you mean. Yeah, totally. We totally. need to communicate in some way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and it's and it is kind of funny though for all this talk about like you know elevated horror and everything. There is a moment in the movie when uh, after like after like it's before here's Johnny. Um, when he, you know, when he's going through the door and you have that shot where it's not of like Wendy and it's not of Jack, it's like of the door and everything coming through. And whenever I see that shot, I'm just like, this shot would be like great in 3D. (laughs) It's like, this would totally be like Friday the 13th 3D when some like, you know, machete is thrown at the camera or something like that. Like that would very much work for like a B horror movie kind of in your face 3D moment. Oh yeah. Oh God! I my bloody Valentine three D. Yeah, exactly. And something that our friend uh, Alex, um, I, forgive me if I'm butchering your name, Alex. Alex Willoughby, I believe, um, Willoughby. Um, but something Alex noted that Marshall said about The Shining was that uh, how atypical it was for a horror film of the time, where a common film you would see the scare at the same time as the characters in The Shining you see the reaction before it cuts to the scare or or they're often just like so divorced from each other just to sort of like they're like they're just cutting to you know hotel rooms and I mean not like the elevator I mean like the blood coming out and everything like that it's so divorced from the rest of the movie in terms of what the characters are actually in terms of what the characters are seeing with their own eyes but it's so relevant to what Danny is feeling absolutely and when they're when Danny's going around and when Jackson is catatonic stupor, mm. if you will, um, I think that's giving him too much credit. Yeah, I was, I, you know, <laughs> I, you know re- really trying there, but like um, <laughs> the detachment, like as a viewer, and this gets back to kind of the comfort of it is like, uh, I feel detached from this. Like I'm watching something, and when you're watching Danny and he is. Driving that big wheel, riding all around, mm-hmm. and when he's seen those images, and just because what Tony says, remember, they're just like pictures, pictures in your head. Pictures. So that's a really nice thing to say. That's a, that's some good wisdom to to give mm-hmm. to somebody who has a psychic power that they need to defend themselves. Like it's mm-hmm. a. Over the years, I've thought that actually, like, oh, Tony's a. Tony is kind of very much looking out for Danny mm-hmm. in in some senses and oh, he's only showing as much as he can see at the time. And just mm-hmm. kind of like, oh, that's a very frightening concept. Mm-hmm. But the detachment, Danny, when he's riding around and he's watching those things, it's almost like he doesn't know what he's watching and you don't know what you're watching. And it's just kind of a, just a general confusion. And I think that's one of the best states that the movie puts out. It's just complete, quiet confusion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's almost, uh, because of how, I guess, maybe cold a lot of the cinematography is, or like just how maybe sterile, I guess mm. you could call it, um, when he's going around on the Hang tricycle. The yeah. And like when he's going around on the tricycle, it's like the way that it's shot with the steady cam, it's like it's just so, well, it's so energetic and it's such a nice escape from the coldness, of, from like the 
sterility of it all. That's long. And then it's like, and you're just like, yeah, Danny, no, keep, no, Danny, keep riding the tricycle. Don't stop riding the tricycle, Danny. <laughs> Don't go to that room. Do yes. not go in that room. Exactly. Yeah. And, and he's on the tricycle for, you know, big wheel tricycle, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, those scenes are longer than you'd think watching him again. Mm-hmm. He just keeps going. And you can also he- really hear. It's like everything cut out, but you can really hear the wheels on the ground. And those turns, when you mentioned Steadicam, I thought my first thought was, oh, he's got to be talking about those turns because mm-hmm. that is yes. attention grabbing. Mm-hmm. And he makes another turn. Mm-hmm. He's going. And he makes another turn. It's like he's always going into a different world. Exactly. Yeah. And that feeling of endlessness. Like I think him on that, let's just call it a vehicle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that really, to me, gives me the mental map of the Overlook. And it is completely impossible. Just keeps going. Something else, too, that I think about is when you think about directors that are often considered to be perfectionists, um, and I'm, I don't know, I might have missed something, but or I might have misread something. Yeah, it would be an, an, an understatement for Stanley yes. Kubrick, right? Yes. But what I think is interesting is that there were a, one of the things that really aggravated Jack Nicholson was that they were constantly getting like rewrites. Whereas, yeah. when you think about, um, I take the Coen Brothers for instance, and apparently they're not a directing duo anymore; they're just doing their own thing. But I don't know what's going on there. Hope they're well, I guess. But um, uh, I think best luck to the uh, Coen Brothers. Yeah, and I, I forget who said it, but um, I think it might have been Haley Steinfeld talking about True Grit, where they're you know they write and direct their movies. And they're very much, um, and they're not very big on uh, feedback on like improv. Like, mm. like they're just mm. like if someone tries to improvise, yeah, that was great. Can you just stick to the script though? Um, hey, they say it clear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's to be that's to be uh, understood. If someone says they went straight, oh yeah, exactly. That's but, what, but what I think is interesting is that um, because Kubrick also like writes and directs his movies. And you're, and it's just surprising to hear that this perfectionist is, and it's, and I just really want to know like what exactly was changing with these rewrites because, I think as I said before, you know, however upset Stephen King may be that it's not a redemption story, it's pretty close to the book in terms of like just the dialogue and the structure, and just this thought that there are so many of these rewrites for this perfectionist, it's like, it, it almost it just speaks to like this I guess chasm between like what Stanley Kubrick saw in that story and like just the minutiae of different things that he apparently did with it that just so completely divorced it from the book and I think in an effective way wow I think Sam when you said chasm that nailed it and I think that's where your standard conspiracy theories would come in and why you should listen for a little bit and be like well that well that kind of makes sense. I, I can't think about that anymore. Mm-hmm. But like what you said, the, the, that minutiae, like what are you doing? Like mm-hmm. are you are you making more time somehow by doing this? Like what what are you doing over there? Is there some arcane magic going on? Mm-hmm. And uh, the one the one documentary clip I was actually watching recently, I think someone's mom was there. I think it was Stanley Kubrick's mom, mm-hmm. and and he hands her a script. He's like, oh, here, this is the newest one. And Jack, Jack Nicholson's like, yeah, they're changing all the time or something like that. Mm. It's funny you mention that because yeah. the one clip, like, Jack Nicholson seemed kind of fine with it, but I don't know. Like, uh, that was one clip from the documentary of how long it took. Mm. Going back to Jack's performance for a little bit, there's a moment that's just... Um, when he's like screaming in his nightmares, and then he's like, "Oh, I had the most." Hor-. And then he like tells his what, yeah, yeah. And then it's like, just the way that he's saying it, it's almost like it, he, he's completely aware of how horrifying it. That he doesn't need to say this, but he is. It's almost like he's kind of he's like feigning this innocence, like, "Oh, this is so horrible! I can't believe it happened." But he's also kind of like, you know, it's yeah. Like, and that strikes me as him being purely horrified. Having watched it last night, it struck me as a person who was reverted back to a child, huddled up, just horrified. Okay. It was the scary. The way he says it, he's like, "That's the scariest dream I ever had in my whole life." And have you ever heard someone say that to you in real life? Oh no, that person needs some help. 
Yeah, and it, but it also seems like he's perfectly content with it, too, is what I mean. It's like he's saying... I don't think so. You don't think so? But that was just my take, and that that also kind of feeds into, like, my personal bias of loving how Jack Nicholson seems genuinely conflicted. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like he's... His rationality of, you know, having to do his job as the keeper of the, mm-hmm. uh, of the inn, it's almost like he's flipping back and forth between being a, you know, crazed crazed killer and at the same time someone who's in a nightmare I guess ha- nightmare dream I guess something that I just think about is just the script because he's clearly been writing this for a while like this was written before like this is written before he even went like he started writing this before they even went to the overlook you're, you're saying that he was writing All Work and No Play before they I'm pretty sure, or at least he kind of knew that's what he wanted to do at the very least. And so that's why I... You're saying that, that you think he knew he wanted to write yeah. pages of it? That's a very interesting perspective to take, Sam. And I remember something that uh, something Stephen King said as part of his objection. It's like, when you see Jack Nicholson for the first time, you know this guy's nuts. <laughs> you know? You, like, you know, the first, like, my book was about, like, this guy slowly losing his mind <laughs> and dealing with alcoholism. In the movie, he's already lost it. Okay, I understand where Stephen King's coming from. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, like... And Jack's out of his mind when they're, mm-hmm. when they're walking through the overlook. He's looking all over the place. Mm-hmm. I, I think maybe it's sort of like a happy medium. I think with his mind, his mindset when he's like, you know, crying and just like, oh, I cut you to pieces. I think, I, I mean, I think something that's kind of ignored in a lot of movies is that, or I, I guess when we try to add like, quote unquote, nuance to villains, we often try to, oh, they have a good motivation they just have a sad unfortunate tragic genocidal way of going exactly. about it and i think we kind of forget that uh that you have bad people who think they are capable of compassion so i think like he's all so if he's already very scary yeah i think if he's already like this murdering loon he's like oh but i don't have to be that i think it's like i think he's just oh i can you know oh or you get what I'm saying? Yeah, but I think I think probably because you read the book, probably you have more insight into it. But when I see him, it or here's a good comparison for the kind of abuse for the kind of abusive man that Jack Torrance is when he's like. Well, you know like, what happens when you get angry, Sam? Yeah. Oh. You break your child's arm. Oh no, that's so terrible. But when he's so you know you're distracting me, I have to go back to like the way that he looks at her. I think is so like after she leaves. The way he looks at her, he's almost like, oh, I wish I, like, it's not compassionate like he regrets it, like properly regrets it. He's compassionate, like, quote-unquote compassionate, like, where he's like, I wish I didn't have to yell at her like that, <laughs> you know? It's like, I care about her so much. Why does she make me yell at her like that? And then oh, the most horrible thing happened. I killed you in my dream. It's like, I would never want to do that to you because you would never make me want to do that or whatever. <laughs> it's like, that's what's so fucked up about it. Or, excuse me, I know we said No, it's all good. And, and just the way you said that, I know that we have a different feeling on this. Mm-hmm. Because I don't think Jack is in any way there as a killer when he wakes up from that dream. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's some type of act? Uh, I, I guess I think it's both. I think it's... I okay, I think th- instead of any acting or any well, extreme okay. mind work, Jack is... Part one or part two. Maybe, he's kind of flipping in between. He doesn't know what's going on. Maybe. Uh, I don't. It's hard to say, but yeah, I guess. Okay, so my experience with the Shining book is very interesting because I actually I read the Doctor Sleep book when I was in rehab, mm. and I read it before I read the Shining book, and I just kind of like went along with the changes. Like, oh, okay, Dick Halloran's alive. Okay. Mm. Um, gotcha, gotcha. Okay, he didn't he didn't die in that one. Okay, it's mm-hmm. like oh oh the overlook was burned down. Okay, mm-hmm. all right. I was yeah. just, I just kind of picked these things up and went along with mm-hmm. it. And at the end, um, and at the end of the book, uh, I think it's like there's a redemption for Jack's spirit because he redeems himself at the end of the book by at the end of the Shining book by burning down the overlook. Um, Stark contrast. Yes, but when I read that redemption thing, I was just like, oh okay. I mean, I guess like I kind of thought okay, that doesn't quite fit with my view of Jack Torrance from The Shining movie, but because, well, excuse me, they had already cast Ewan McGregor 
in the Doctor Sleep. So I read, sorry, I read the Doctor Sleep book knowing that there was going to be a movie and it was going to be a sequel to the Shining movie. And I thought, oh, okay, I guess like they could probably try and make it work where Jack like comes back trying to redeem himself. But something that um, the movie very much establishes, the Doctor Sleep movie establishes, is he does not redeem himself in the Doctor Sleep movie. Mm. Like there's no, like they very much acknowledge that he was an evil, horrible person. So, so they're sticking with the movie. Yeah, and that's what, and I think that sort of kind of paints my view of everything about Jack is, because, again, like, you know, maybe he was just, like, sort of possessed by the Overlook, but... I think that's it. But I don't, but that's what, I don't think it is, I think, I don't think it's that in the, in the Shining movie. I think he's, like, I think he's actually, like, content with the Overlook. I think it definitely gets there. Yeah. You know, but the one scene that comes to mind when I was asking you if you thought he was acting. Of course, there's some back and forth there. But it strikes me as when he's chasing Daniel, when he's chasing Wendy... And I do have something to say about that act, but go ahead. Yeah. Um, he doesn't strike me as somebody who is outsmarting somebody or even intending to outsmart somebody mm-hmm. when he's like, come, oh, come here, Danny. Like, come mm-hmm. here. Like, I think he's got no clue. Like, it's it's not like he... What, do you think he's... Do you think he... Well, I think maybe that's my point, is that, like, that kind of paternal, like, oh, come on, daddy boy, come here. I yeah. think that is just completely in sync with his murderous mania. I can get with that. Though. Yeah. I, I, I see it. Mm-hmm. And I think... Um, and Okay, so I, maybe this is the happy view that I think I was trying to talk about before with when he talks about the nightmare. I think, like, uh, you know, I don't know. Like, I don't want to suggest that, you know, men should repress, but I think, like, a more... A, a, someone who had a better understanding of how horrifying that was wouldn't tell their wife that they had that nightmare. Interesting. Great point, and especially the, the contents of said nightmare. Yeah, it's like just... You know, there's a way to get her to understand how scared you are. Like, I think if he really like, like, I think he, I think he is horrified by that. But I think like maybe he would just, if he woke up from that nightmare and he really loved his wife, he would like hug her, like, oh, come here, baby, or something like that, and not even say anything, and then maybe bring it up later. Because, you know, because um, I spoke with someone uh, about like OCD and like intrusive thoughts, mm-hmm. um, and. I won't. I won't say who this person is. Yeah, um, that would be impolite. Yeah, exactly. Uh, no doxing on this. And, and they, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, and they probably listen to this, but um, this but person, still. yeah, but yeah, exactly, exactly. But we're uh, decent people. We promise. Well, yeah. Something that this person said to me was that they have children, and they have you know intrusive thoughts about those children, where it's like they want to do something bad to those children, like they don't want to, but the thought comes up, and they and this person said to me that they were trying to figure out like how to like they wanted to tell their children about this but they but you know but they knew to but not so much like to sort of understand what their mom goes through but that's heavy yeah exactly so i think someone who is more properly horrified by that like people with intrusive thoughts are by those intrusive thoughts know to like go about that with delicacy to respond to that with you know to sort of counteract that with love by just like loving the children and then like being able to bring it up to them in an uncomfortable you know an uncomfortable truth that's a lie basically where in I a have, mental health context yeah exactly exactly whereas Jack's just like oh man <laughs> Wendy I had this horrible nightmare that I wanted to kill you okay I'm gonna go sit down now you know that's what it's, the scene as we're talking about it it is a deep scene like the more you think about it the crazier it is and I think the thing that shocks me is, why would he say that to Wendy? Like, 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 it doesn't strike me as he would have said that to anybody who was standing right next to him. Mm-hmm. You're like, he's out. Mm-hmm. And she just happened to be the person who heard him saying this. Yeah. And he is unconcerned with anything. Yes. And he is purely acting on Yeah, it's like he's how giving he feels. no thought to it. Yeah. E- exactly. And I think, mm-hmm. like, I think that's where, yeah, so I think that's how I p- characterize that component of Jack is like, yeah, I guess that's how you describe possession. Yeah, I think what I was, yeah, I think what I was trying to do before when I was trying, I, I shouldn't have said act, but I think 
of a speech. Well, I said act. I asked you. Well, but I think, well, I do think, maybe when I treated it like it was an act, basically, mm -hmm. I think that there is ultimately a distinction. I think where we probably agree is that there is a distinction between the horrified concern that he seems to have and, like, the actual emotional response that someone would have if they were horrified. Oh, there's that. a disconnection between... Yeah. <laughs> between the words he's saying mm -hmm. and who he's saying them yes. to and how he's acting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Wouldn't be a proper Shining Podcast episode if we did not mention the Red Rum scene. Of course. Of course. And of course. Watching it last night, I knew it was coming. It still messed me up. It's still the way his voice changes and how it picks up and then it's looking and it's in the mirror and it's written backwards. It's the best. Mm. It's just absolutely fantastic. And that's kind of in keeping with the simple, uh, kind of simple horror effects that this has where there's not like, not too many like translucent people. It's just kid writes something with, what is it? It's like a red marker, or a red yeah, lipstick, or yeah, something. lipstick. Yeah, yeah, and then it's like, oh, red rum. Like, what does that mean, kiddo? Oh, that's what it means. Yeah. <laughs> and well, anybody out there who's listening who's ever played the game Xenogears and they've ever been deep locked in the sewers, there's a boss there named Red Rum, and nice. it is a dramatic jump in difficulty in the game. Mm -hmm. And I love that game, and I feel as though Red Rum in that game properly evokes the fear mm -hmm. of Danny writing backwards in a mirror. Yes, in a shining. exactly. And I think that's a pretty perfect place to end this on. Hey, um, Sam, thanks for having the podcast, and uh, really enjoyed it. Yeah, hope to have you on again. Thanks, Jake, and uh, thanks for listening, everybody.